Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Ann Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a special bonus episode of our podcast as we share the recording from our Fall Book Club author event. My colleague, Jasmine Obeseikerer, interviews Dr. Felicia Wu Song, cultural sociologist, professor, and author of Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Listening in on the finale of our Fall Book Club is a real treat, a delightful glimpse into the book club community as they dig deeply into the content of Restless Devices with the author herself. We're sharing the entirety of the book club finale here in this episode, and it begins with Jasmine's introduction of our guest. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Welcome, everyone, to the finale of the Fall Book Club, hosted by InterVarsity's Women Scholars and Professionals. We've had some great conversations on Felicia Wu Song's book, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. And today, we are delighted to have Dr. Song join us. Felicia Song, who is a cultural sociologist and professor of sociology at Westmont College, studies the place of digital technologies in contemporary life. Having trained in history, communication studies, and sociology from Yale, Northwestern, and University of Virginia, her research is oriented around the rapidly evolving digital technology industry and how the adoption of social media and digital devices fundamentally alters the landscapes of family, community, and organizational life. Dr. Song's prior research has included studies of expectant women's online information-seeking habits and the evolution of mommy bloggers as social media professionals. She regularly speaks on digital practices, social media, the digital media industry, parenting in the digital age, and spiritual formation at universities and colleges, churches, schools, parent groups, and conferences. She also serves as Associate Editor at Current, an online journal of commentary commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. In addition to Restless Devices, she has authored Virtual Communities, Bowling Alone, Online Together. Dr. Song lives in Santa Barbara, California with her husband and two children. She enjoys gardening. During the pandemic, a grounding practice for her was tending a row that she kept in a local community garden that gave her a daily rhythm of walking to the garden and an opportunity to serendipitously run into other gardeners. Because teaching sociology often involves discussing quite sobering issues, when looking for something fun to read, she only enjoys reading children's books written for nine to 12 year olds rather than books for older people. She also enjoys doing the New York Times crossword puzzle and daydreams about becoming a bass player. 
Felicia, thank you for being with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you all. So before we del delve into the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to Christ and what are some formative experiences as a Christian? Hmm. Sure. Um, so I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my parents immigrated from Taiwan. Um, and so I grew up going to a Chinese Baptist church. Um, it was an immigrant church of all um, Chinese um, families that had come from Taiwan, from Hong Kong at the time. And um, that was um, the place where I was with other Chinese people. Um, it was, you know, weekends with Chinese people and school days with my Italian, Polish immigrant, you know, descendant kids in New Jersey. Um, and so I, I, I definitely had the, a kind of bifurcated life. And um, I came to become a Christian as a child. Um, I, you know, I was I was a pretty, um, I would say a pretty docile child, you know, like I was taught something and I was like, okay, sure, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> And so I was baptized in high school, um, and um, and then I went off to college. Uh, when I went to college, I joined InterVarsity um, Christian Fellowship, and um, that was actually where I started to, uh, as I, I'm sure it is for many young people, to own my faith, right? Mm -hmm. That it wasn't my family's anymore, but it was something that I was going to seek to grow in on my own. And being in a varsity um, in my campus setting meant that I was being exposed to um, Christians, not only from around the country, but Christians that grew up in very different kinds of faith traditions. Mm. Um, and also grew up in parachurch ministries like Young Life, and so I, I didn't know at the time that Christians could have fun, right? <laughs> you know, in, in the in the Chinese kind of more, you know, uh, kind of strict uh, setting that I grew up in. It was it was a lot of rules, a lot of being good, um, and so it was fascinating to realize, oh, God loves for us to play also. Um, and so, university was just a really lovely space to grow and meet other people and to grow in my own understanding of who God is. Um, and then, um, you know, through a lot of, I, I kind of describe myself as a spiritual mutt um, because I, I have many different seasons in my life where I've, I've been in a Presbyterian church. I, I uh, spent uh, 15 years in the Episcopal Church um, and I uh, was part of Vineyard Christian Fellowship, right? A more charismatic um, setting. And so all of those times and places in my own journey have been formative, incredibly formative. And I'm so grateful for each of those seasons of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so, yeah, that's kind of, how I, you know, kind of what my faith journey has looked like. And, and certainly, as you all know, when, when you get into academia, um, there's all these new puzzles that you have to figure out. 
about one's faith. And so I'm I'm really thankful that I happened to work with an advisor who is a person of faith. And so when I was in graduate school, I was, I was actually quite um, had a very rich experience. It was a very rich intellectual Christian experience, which is quite unusual, I think, for most people. Um, and so that was that was deeply formative as well. Yeah, that's very rich and varied and interesting. Thank you for sharing uh, about yourself. What made you want to write Restless Devices? Mm. Um, so. This is a book that in many ways, um, it's the book that I've wanted to write since I began grad school. Um, uh, after college, I was, I, was, I was a late bloomer. Um, when I was in college, I had a lot of fun with InterVarsity and my young life friends. <laughs> um, and, um, and it took me a while to realize, and it, it I, it, it took actually another graduate student um, who sat me down and, and talked to me about this. They explained to me that the life of the mind was something that one could actually commit and invest in as a Christian, which was something I didn't know for a long time. Christianity was just a pious, a spiritual pious um, aspect of my of my life. And so it wasn't until after I left college that my brain turned on. Um, and then I was very excited. I spent some time at Labrie Fellowship in Massachusetts, um, really impacted by Francis Schaeffer early on. And so I started getting interested in media from reading um, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was also the years that email was coming into mainstream use. And I was teaching at a private school um, where students were getting email. And I was, I began becoming interested in the fact that we don't talk about technology in our culture. That is, we adopt a lot of technologies, but we don't actually know how to really talk about it and to discuss collectively okay. the benefits and the drawbacks of it. And that was very puzzling to me um, that I would be in organizations and school settings where we were adopting all of these new technologies, but we didn't seem to want to think about it, be reflective about it. And so when I started grad school, um, I very much wanted to understand why that was. Um, and then as I, as I started learning more, um, I realized, oh, we don't know how to think about technology. We don't know how to talk about it, not, you know, certainly in society and definitely in the church. We don't have conversations about it um, in, in, in more, you know, in ways that are actually productive, not just, oh, don't do this, right? <laughs> or these are the obviously, you know, these things lead to moral vices, that kind of stuff. Um, and so Restless Devices came out of um, a desire to start a conversation, basically, right? To try to understand enough myself to help people start having meaningful conversations and be able to make informed decisions um, in their own lives, but also in organizations and collective spaces. Um, and so, you know, it's been a long time since I started grad school. Um, and this book has just kind of been sitting inside of me for a long time. 
Um, so I'm really grateful that it, it could actually get birthed. And I'm grateful that um, I, you know, I spent my first years in a secular institution. I was teaching at Louisiana State University. Um, and I'm thankful that I was able to shift into teaching in a Christian liberal arts college where I could write the book and have it be valued um, within my professional context. Um, and so um, all those pieces kind of needed to get lined up um, for me to be able to finally get the book out. Yeah, thank you for writing the book. We enjoyed reading and discussing the book and uh, the practical uh, exercise are very helpful. Mm. Uh, and I want to ask the question that Jessica has posed. Uh, which is related, would you be willing to share one or two experiences of connection you had with God while writing the book? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I think the book felt like a risk. Um, the book felt like a risk because, um, so I'm trained as a sociologist. There are certain things that you do when you write sociology. There's a certain voice that you take on. There's certain kind of data you're supposed to use, right? It's just like, you know, just like with every single discipline, there's a way to do things. And so writing this book, um, there was that constant voice of, you know, the grad school voice of this is what you should do because if you want to be a real sociologist, <laughs> right, you have to do these things. You got to check these boxes. Um, but one of the things I have known about myself um, since I finished college is that um, I'm also a writer. Like I enjoy the craft of writing um, and it's a different kind of writing, right? It's a, a, um, a more personal mode of writing that isn't the expository, you know, academic journal type writing. And so writing the book and I'm so thankful for John Boy, the editor who kind of walked me through this was wanting, I, I wanted to be the sociologist and the writer at the same time. I wanted both because I felt like that's who I am, but I wasn't sure if it would fly. Um, and I wasn't sure because, you know, I might have lots of credentials in my sociology side of my life. I don't have any writing credentials. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be a good enough writer. Um, to kind of let that voice stand and be compelling. And so um, writing the book, this is all a long way to say, writing the book, um, especially, and I'm so grateful that I get this chance to talk to people who have actually read the book, <laughs> um, um, like writing the stories that lead a lot of the chapters and being much more reflective, just, you know, like really just speaking like from me as a human being, not just as a sociologist were really important to me. Um, but it also required really um, feeling a sense of God's affirmation of that voice um, and trusting that it was um, it, that the things I wanted to say were worth saying. Um, and so my, my habit of writing, um, among other things was I write it, I am an early morning writer. Um, and so I'm a, like, get, oh, you know, wake up before the rest of the family wakes up type of person. 
because mm-hmm. that's the only time I get quiet and like I can only think I can hear my thoughts. And so all those mornings, you know, um, there was certainly a lot of dreariness and waking up, you know, especially during the winter when it's just pitch dark. Um, but I'm and when I look back now, I, I definitely have a profound sense of, you know, God was with me every one of those mornings. Um, and really, um, you know, there's some there's some passages in in the book that I honestly don't remember writing. Like I really don't. And so that to me is like, okay, well, that was the spirit, you know, like God just was moving in that time. And I'm so thankful for it. Thanks, Felicia. Uh, the first part of your book highlights the reality that we live in a state of permanent connectivity. But before turning your attention to our habits, you write about the objectives of digital media companies. Can you talk to us about the role the digital companies themselves play in our permanent connectivity and how our collective lives are perhaps being intentionally shaped? Yeah. Um, so I do spend time talking about the digital industry because I think, and it's changing, um, you know, documentaries like Social Dilemma on Netflix have, have raised a lot of awareness and, and certainly people are talking a lot more about, uh, you know, with all the Facebook whistleblower stuff, you know, all of that's in the news now in ways that it wasn't a couple of years ago. But I think our lived experience and is often that we get frustrated at our devices and our platforms and our email inboxes and we forget that there are industries behind all of those interfaces. Um, and I think, as I say in the book, I, I feel like so much of us feel, so many of us feel frustrated and we feel maybe, you know, even ashamed or guilty for not being able to, uh, you know, stop using certain platforms or feeling like we're wasting our time watching too many Netflix or YouTube videos, whatever it is. Right. And we, we, we put that on ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, and, and maybe indeed there are things that we, we need to work on. Um, but we forget that there's an incredibly well-resourced and intentional industry that is actively working on keeping us there in all the platforms. Um, and, and I think it's when you start to realize, oh, wow, there's, you know, these companies have invested in the science, they've invested in the addiction experts, they've invested in these algorithms, they care about what colors these buttons are, they care about the timing of, you know, it's so mm. micromanaged, right? Mm. Um, and as some people have called it, you know, it's it's a behavioral modification system. It's just like, wow, like, how did we end up in this space, right? And, and um, and obviously, how do we get out? Um, but I think in order to appreciate um, why it's so hard to manage our digital lives, it's it's important to to be able to identify what we're actually dealing with, right? Mm. And and what we're dealing with is something huge. It's huge, mm. um, and no wonder we're losing, right? <laughs> Um, and so, and it, it also, I think maybe if some of us are interested in this question, it's, it raises a good question about like, well, 
what do we hold these companies to? You know, like, do we hold them responsible mm. for certain decisions that they make? And and um, and especially if if we are ourselves people that that work in, you know, we're engineers, we're computer scientists. You know, like, how do we work in these spaces mm. and be faithful? Right? Those are all like important questions to think about. But I think, you know, to the degree that the industry is interested in um, retaining our attention um, by whatever means, um, I think, um, as I try to say in the book, uh, all of these little habits of, of uh, feeling the itch to check our phones, to check our platforms, right, those are shaping us. It's shaping who are who we are daily becoming, even if they're like super small things, right? That that feel inconsequential, right? Um, but they are uh, profoundly shaping us. And certainly, if you're someone who's engaged in social media, it's shaping how we think about ourselves. It's thinking about how it's shaping how we think about others. Um, you know, I'd love to just have a conversation with all of you guys, <laughs> all, all of you gals, about. Okay. Um, just what your experiences have been because I think it's um it's just so complicated yeah so I wonder whether you can talk more about this whole being shaped uh, idea and especially how that shaping is different from the intention God has for us uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how we are to be formed spiritually uh, so the question is you mentioned that the desires are digital practices encouraging us, are training us to love something very different from the kingdom of God. Can you explain how our digital interactions are forming us? What kind of people are we becoming and why is that troubling? So you started speaking to the fact that we're being shaped uh, differently. And uh, if you can yeah. address that a little in depth. Yeah, yeah sure. Um you know, I've started thinking about um, how a short a shorthand way to talk about this might be to say that um, I think the digital ecology shapes us to believe that we live in a world of scarcity. Um, mm-hmm. That is, there's we have to compete for attention. Um, there's not enough time, um, and. Um, it drives us to fear, um, lack, our own sense of lack. I'm not good enough here. I'm not as good as that person. They're having a better vacation, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, whereas the Christian story is a story of abundance, actually, mm. and generosity rather than scarcity, right? And so it, it, the Christian story says that um, we are already all we need to be, right? God has already created us in, in the fullness of his glory um, and that um, we do not need to fear um, what other people think, right? Um, and... And so this difference between scarcity and abundance, I think is, you know, it just is a kind of um, posture, right? That we bring to life that can be so different, right? If we believe that actually I have enough time 
to live out whatever God wants me to do, right? Like to actually come to believe that, I mean, I don't know how to do that yet, but to actually come to believe that would be transformative, right? Um, But I think that's part of, that's, that's, you know, part of the faith is, is learning to live into that. Um, The other part of what, um, what we're being shaped uh, into believing is that um, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book is, is that I think the digital, um, has a tendency to focus us away from embodiment, um, Mm -hmm. that it's, it's always devaluing our embodiment, um, by prioritizing whatever it is that we might post. Um, and, and that also means devaluing, um, what's happening around us, what's proximate around us, right? So what's important is the thing on the screen. What's important is that email that you need to respond to, right? Rather than saying, no, actually we're created with bodies that inhabit time and that are in places and that those times and then those places are are meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. And And God is in those times and places, um, and so we want to be actually present um, rather than um, living elsewhere, right? Having our consciousness kind of dwelling in some other space. Mm. Um, and so I think in the end of the day, it, you know, if we are not reflective and intentional about our, our digital lives, um, we can come to believe that all that matters, you know, the vision of the good life is one that is about productivity, maximal optimization, right? Um, and we lose sight of, uh, and, you know, and, and there's obviously good things about being productive, uh, but we lose sight of um, actually the aspects of God that are not very productive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and I'm, I'm very interested in that, right? Of just like what, you know, the beingness um, or, or the apparently not productive um, parts of creation um, that are just there for beauty, that are intrinsically valuable. Um, and certainly if we turn that gaze on people, right? That there are people that don't appear to be productive, right? Um, and so I, I think there's, it's just such a, um, you know, it's not like there's a manifesto that's that we're being dragged into, right? It's not like a, it's not like propaganda that's like jamming it down our throats, but it's just this subtle kind of like whittling away of our imaginations mm-hmm. of, of uh, I think what, is a Christian imagination. I like that phrase too, uh, whittling away of our imaginations. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, in actively resisting the pull to abide in the digital, you encourage us to cultivate a different way of being rather than adding another set of do's and don'ts to our lives. Uh, Can you give examples of how academics can create communal cultures of sacred spaces in their classrooms and departments? Mm. Uh, That's a good question. 
Um, so, um, so with departments, um, you know, that's not something I, I still, I still have a lot to, to work on in that category. Um, but one thing I try to do, um, or at least I'm, I'm always very mindful of it is, and I think I mentioned this in the book is that when I'm emailing off hours, um, I really work on scheduling when it gets sent out so that the email doesn't land in my colleagues' boxes on the weekend or in the evenings, because um, I want to communicate to them that I don't, ex uh, so I've been, I've been, I say all this because I've been serving as a department chair for many years, and I'm also mm -hmm. sort of, I'm a, a senior colleague, so I have a lot of junior colleagues who are watching me, right, I'm taking my cues, and so I'm just very sensitive to not wanting to communicate to them false expectations or expectations that I think are unhealthy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to schedule out when those emails go, even if I'm working on it myself. Um, and the classrooms, I have a little more to say about this just because it's something that I do, th I do think more about. And, and I'd be curious what many of you are seeing also. Um, but I, I increasingly um, and, I, and I know I have the luxury because I teach sociology. I'm not teaching chemistry um, where you're preparing students for, you know, an MCAT and you got to get through the material. So in sociology, if I need to cut things, um, it's OK. I can lean into other sorts of um, lessons or practices. But um, I'm finding that a lot of my students are... Um, like me, uh, still quite tired um, and exhausted from the pandemic, all of the turmoil that mm. it created. Um, and, you know, in sociology classes, we talk about race a fair bit. So certainly what's been happening nationally, politically, in the racial climate, what's happening or what's not happening, um, it's all very vexing and burdensome for so many of my students. And so something I've started doing more is, um, you know, I do write in the book about how um, I, I did take away their phones and had them put them in little boxes um, for a while. I haven't done that. I haven't gone back to that since the pandemic, um, just trying to respect people's, you know, sense of health um, and well-being. Um but I do, I've kind of started building in time in my class and it doesn't take a whole lot of time. And this was actually inspired by a colleague in the art department that I know. He has his students do a couple stretches before they create art. Um, and in sociology, we end up talking about a lot of hard things and you could see students' bodies kind of like start just, you know, just like when we when we're burdened and we're, troubled by complicated things, our bodies, you know, get tight. And so increasingly I'm having students get up and stretch. Like we, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have, like, I don't lead them through yoga. I don't, you know, I like, I, I'd say do whatever you need to do to stretch, but I build in time. Now I tell them, I'm just like, you are processing this with your body. You know, it's not just your mind your body is processing this and you got to work it out of your body because you can't carry it for the rest of the day in you, right? And so 
I'm much more intentional about that. And I'm also much more intentional during the breaks when a lot of my students just want to sit in their chairs and look at their phones. I make them get up, (laughs) go outside. I live in Santa Barbara, so it's always sunny and it's always nice, right? (laughs) So like go out there, get some sun on your face, right? Like enjoy what is out there. Don't sit in here looking at your screen, right? And I tease them about it. I am not draconian or heavy handed about it. Um, but it's just trying to, you know, help them become aware of what's going on in their, that their bodies matter, right? Like to, to just get them to think about that, um, and to realize that, um, yeah, that their phones are, are taking pleasure away, actually. So Laura says, uh, this is about, uh the 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 basket for the phones and uh, maybe pre-pandemic I guess when you first started having your students leave their phones in the basket was there pushback from the students how did you handle this perhaps they didn't want that communal space (laughs) (laughs) um you know um at least my students and and I would say a lot of the students in my college they're very sweet and earnest and deferent. Um, and so even if they were grumbling in their hearts, um, they none of them kind of put up a fight. Um, and and again, I I I try to put a light touch on it usually, you know, like I don't I don't make it, I don't try to make it seem, you know, this try not to be an ogre about it, I guess. Um, and, and so I just tease them and because inevitably, you know, it's funny because inevitably someone's phone will start ringing or buzzing in the box. Right. Mm-hmm. And it'll just keep buzzing because we don't know whose it is and they're getting nervous that it's, it. and so we just have a fun moment in the class, you know, kind of joking about the buzzing phone. Um, I think, um, you know, I think it's interesting, too, because students are in a different place from where they were 10 years ago, five years ago. You know, the, the, they're having conversations with each other, um, or at least they 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 know um, that it's not great having their device the whole time. They don't know what to do about it. You know, they feel stuck, um, but they know in a different way now. Um, and so I feel like increasingly students are open to it. Um, the trick that I haven't quite figured out is how to have them not reach for the phones during break. Because <laughs> um, sometimes they'll come and, and, and so I, I probably need to, once I get back into it, I need to be a little more maybe ogre-ish about that um and tell them no 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 during breaks you get to talk to each other um you don't need you don't need to look Mm. um now we have a question from alicia Uh, do you have any thoughts on what we might do as individuals and communities to prepare for the possibility of something like covid lockdowns happening again regarding how we relate in healthy ways to the digital world in a situation where physical presence is restricted. Oh man, that's 
That's super hard. Um, um, one thing I've been thinking a lot more about is, um, and you're probably getting the sense of it from the stories I've been sharing, is I've been thinking more about the value of praxis in our classes. Um, so not just um, knowledge, uh, what you can do with your brains, but trying to think through how doing things, activities with one's body, right, actually helps students learn certain things. And I wonder if one of the things we, you know, uh, you know, kind of discovered, learned from this past experience is just how much uh, well, one, we can't really do Zoom for like eight hours a day without just completely going bonkers, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's just unsustainable, right? And for those, all of us that had to teach, it's just terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just awful. And so it's trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, how can we um collectively learn but maybe not try to simulate classroom as much you know like if we're relegated to a lack of co-presence not to just try to like get it to happen here right um but needing to be creative about like okay well how can they learn this in some other way or in some you know um, praxis oriented way. So I think it's, um, it, it's kind of like, um, and I haven't done this work yet. I haven't thought it through, but I, I wonder if it's kind of like what the church is doing or what I think the church needs to do right now, um, post pandemic, which is really kind of figure out at least for the Sunday morning worship services, it's like, what do we think we're really doing? Like, what is that really about? Um, and be willing to change up the format. Um, if, if we realize, you know, um, Sunday morning worship isn't, something that should just be so easily replicable through YouTube, <laughs> you know, um, Sunday morning worship should be something that, that involves community, that involves presence, that involves eating together, sharing together, you know, like whatever it is. And that change it, that might change up how we think or what we do together on Sunday mornings. Um, I wonder if it's the same kind of thing we need to do with our classrooms. Um, it's sort of like, what is it that I really, what we, what do I think I'm really doing in this teaching endeavor? And is there a way to do it um, outside of the traditional classroom space and not just try to replicate it through video, right, online, but like really change it up? I think there's a lot of work that we need to do there. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm going to write a uh, read out one more question and then uh, and then I think uh, Finish also probably would enjoy uh, if there's a little more interaction. Uh, maybe yeah, I love that. Yeah, so we could do that uh, after that. Uh, so the last question that I'm going to ask is from Sarah. I really appreciated the discussion on faithful presence in one of the last chapters. And I definitely hear the importance of physical body and voice in that. I'm wondering, though, if it's possible to practice faithful presence even in the digital world, and if so, what that might look like. Hmm. So faithful presence in like a digital space. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. It seems like, um, well, so I think that digital spaces are at their best or the potential is the highest when, um, or the greatest, potential is the greatest when digital spaces allow people who are marginalized or typically excluded from communities to gather or to find safety or to be seen or heard. I think that's when the digital is at its best. Um, and so in that regard, and I don't know, um, I don't have a concrete sort of example, but I think um, I can see how faithful presence would, could be possible um, especially if you have people that, you know, that can't gather together because they're geographically spread out or they're, um, or they're homebound, um, or right. If it's for a whole host of reasons, um, I, well, so maybe this is kind of an example. So, um, so when I was studying mom bloggers, you know, like so many, um, young mothers, right. They find solace in online communities when they are, stuck at home with their child, you know, just getting through those, that first nine months, whatever it is. Um, and it's very challenging because it's a major shift from what their life has been. Mm. And, um, and I think that's what I found so interesting about studying mom bloggers is that so many of these women really found genuine community in each other. Um, especially when they were going through hard things, right? Whether it's postpartum depression or, or they had been struggling, you know, recovering alcoholism, right? Like whatever it is, it's just those, those individuals were the ones that were clearly the most profoundly grateful, right? To have the online space. And so it seems like when people are, um, uh, sharing in a vulnerability, Right. Um, it can it can be quite powerful if if um, the hunger and the desire to um, provide consolation for each other is there. Um, it does feel like it takes a lot of intention, and it takes a lot of proper structure to have that go well. Um, it can kind of go off the rails easily, I think, and that's what's always tricky about online spaces. Mm -hmm. Pidisha, do you have questions for us? <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, I, I'm just curious about, um, maybe what part of the book was the most, um, I don't know, maybe like brought the most conversation for, for you all. Well, I'll respond. I, I feel like the first part of the book, I think, was a little bit familiar to a lot of us. Mm -hmm. It was more the second part of the book. I had never really thought about it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a single mom, so I found, you know, a lot of community through mm -hmm. social media. And it was really hard for me to see anything negative about, you know, mm -hmm. this online presence. And then mm -hmm. I really appreciated the um, the exercises actually because mm -hmm. it kind of forced me to do them and then I saw holy moses it's so freeing <laughs> not to be online it was you know I, i'm you know like yeah it was it was just such a relief mm -hmm. i realized you know that people i had people's conversations from somewhere else in the world in my head and I was worried about problems of someone else mm. right you know um so yeah I found that some um, really helpful and just that last chapter where you had you know abiding and it was very good yeah mm. I'll let yeah. other people yeah. talk yeah I appreciate that yeah I would agree I think the abiding part was very helpful because I remember even in the first part of the book we were discussing and I was like well you know, how many times do I say to myself, where's my phone? Where's my phone? Instead of saying, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? <laughs> you know, in all of this, where is, where is my solace in that, you know? And um, so I thought that was, you know, definitely hmm. thought provoking and mm -hmm. helped me, you know, realize that it's a tool, Mm -hmm. it's it's not a necessary thing it's a tool mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know I was just going to add that um, I have two older boys now that are in their 20s and they grew up with phones you know mm -hmm. my older boy is a lot more contemplative and thoughtful mm -hmm. and he said to me he said um, he's usually the guy that says you know people just need Jesus honey mama that's all they need you know what mm -hmm. I mean he's kind of one of those but he also said you know the phone is going to be the death of us and he meant the you know the um connectivity of always having a screen in front of us mm, wow and um so i think you know as a mom that gave me you know pause and help that you know i he grew up with a phone but mm -hmm. he has mm -hmm. introspection and he's able mm -hmm. to see mm -hmm. you know that so that was that was nice to see you know what i mean mm -hmm. and my younger boy he's like yeah, I have to get out of the house and I just have to go exercise. I have to. So it's mm -hmm. like they know. Yeah. You know? So mm -hmm. kind of like our yeah. students, they know. But I they, think human beings know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, thanks. Mm -hmm. Anyone else? And then, then it would be time to wrap up. I wondered if you'd heard about anyone like 
So you, you talked about the sort of commitment of churches to digital practices um, and whether you know of any church or, church or Christian communities that are thinking intentionally about these things in a, in a formal way or informal way. Yeah, um, the short answer is no. Um, mm. um, yeah, I think it's, it's um, yeah, the short answer is no. I, I, I don't know. Um, there are some churches that I do know about that um, are embracing uh, just other kinds of models of being church, right? So, um, so thinking of this one church that their model of church is like they bought, they thought they bought property and they're going to farm together, right? And right, I mean, super interesting, different kinds of models of being church. And so, those are the only contexts where I feel like there's more intensive thinking about the place of technology collectively, but in kind of more standard church contexts, I haven't seen a whole lot yet. Yeah. I think one thing we really came home to was a few times was that it's, it's all very well thinking about our individual lives, but like you say in the book, it's sort of, it needs to be built into community reflection. So that's something yeah. I'm, I've been challenged by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's where I just feel like, I mean, as it is with, you know, all of our family lives and even as professors or leaders in various contexts, it's like, unless, unless the, the leaders in the church are, are, have caught a vision, um, it's hard. It's hard to make the change, I think. We hope this peek into our book club might inspire you to join us for one of these events in the future. If you're listening to this episode in real time, you could look into our spring book club, which begins February 1st, and will be focused on the book, Your Calling Here and Now by Gordon T. Smith. We'll share all the details in the show notes, or you can find out more about this or other book clubs at thewell.intervarsity.org. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear one of my favorite passages from Felicia's book. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on these wise words from Felicia in Restless Devices. What would it be like if we were to cultivate such a permanent state of expectancy for God's desire to communicate with us? What if my antenna were always outstretched toward checking in with God as much as I am always checking my smartphone? 
What if I was filled with great expectancy that there would be a word for me, and that I could trust that that word would not be a word that simply demanded something from me, but a word that came to nourish me?